This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level, with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped 49 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all one word, all caps, to save $15 off your first program. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing a full Paper Scraps episode on six of your Paper Tees entries. And we'll be selecting the two winners for August 2018 at the end of the episode. So now let's talk about your own scripts. The first script is called Alliance by John Schuller. Alliance opens on a military convoy moving through the desert. A battle tank is at the head of a large military parade, led by an acclaimed captain in military garb. As the vehicles roll past onlookers, we catch glimpses of the spectators, revealing that they have strange faces and more than five fingers. The tanks are headed to a spaceport as we discover that we're on another planet with two suns. What do you think of this one, Alex? Well, I enjoy the premise and the world building. However... I got a little bit confused by the way things were set up. And I understand on the page what the writer was intending on doing, creating some sense of curiosity and wonderment about the setting, especially the natives, and the fact that they have more than five fingers and awkward faces. But the way the text was laid out in the script created more confusion over anything else for me. And I feel like curiosity is usually bred by interest in the way the story is told, not in obfuscating the way you verbalize things. Yeah, I did really like the way that the world was introduced and then played with the reader's expectations a little bit. You're thinking that we're in Iraq or Afghanistan, and this is like a modern day American military thing. And then we slowly piece together these little bits of more information to see that it's something more than that. So I did enjoy that about it. But I agree with your thoughts that perhaps the way it was handled was perhaps a little more confusing than it should, could have been. Yeah, I think there's ways of leaning into that confusion without verbalizing essentially what the reader is supposed to interpret or supposed to get out of it. You can actually uh, take the hand of the reader a little bit more and outright point out, for example, the number of fingers or those awkward, weird elements that are happening around these humans, I'm assuming. And saying what is wrong with a native's face without literally describing anything about that person's face initially kind of took me out of the read. Yeah, so what the script does, and you may have seen this before in in other scripts, is essentially kind of asks questions to the reader, like, here's what you should be thinking, you know, in italics, like, like you said, what's wrong with their faces? How many fingers were on that hand? And I know that that is something that can grate against a lot of people when they're reading. One of my old bosses used to hate that. It wasn't a huge problem for me, but when it's overdone, it can definitely throw people off. And like you said, Alex, the other way to approach that is simply to state things more clearly about the interest rather than kind of ask these vague questions. Yeah, I think there's a middle ground to be had where you can both state the weirdness of what is happening as well as emphasize it right after with those questions. I just think there can be some middle ground there without leading to too much confusion. And the other major thing I really noticed about the script, and it was only really one page long, is just that the formatting was a little bit strange. There were sort of two or three lines worth of spaces in between some paragraphs, but not others. And look, you know, we say all the time, use white space and play around with it. But there are some things that, you know, you just have to be consistent with it. And it's not usually common to put that many spaces in between paragraphs like that, especially if it's not being consistently done between things. Really read more like almost a novel than it did a script for me. And we 
wouldn't concur that it was actually one of the strangest teasers in terms of formatting that I've seen recently. Uh, like you pointed out, a lot of double spacing and obviously mixing the italics. But also there was a lack of period concluding the sentences. If you uh, look at the script, it just continues on. And I don't know whether the sentence is supposed to end or begin. So it's just a little bit strange. You know, it's funny. I didn't notice that on the first read. And then when you pointed out, I'm like, oh, yeah, the sentences just never end. So I guess that's something where, again, you know, there are no hard and fast rules in terms of style, but this just feels like it's not necessary for a stylistic effect and instead just feels kind of grammatically off. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a bit like leaning into the fact that the italics are meant to be what the reader is thinking, even though you can mix that, but you could also have a character thinking that. So that's actually another element that I think I'm slightly missing from the teaser is just character building and sort of a launch point for the story, not just the world building, but uh, what is the show going to be about besides, I guess, an occupation of a, a foreign entity. Right. We're seeing this character, this military captain from the outside and how people are looking at him, but we're not inside anyone's point of view. This is like an omniscient, here's the world and the setting, these things that are happening. And so we're not grounded in any particular person. And uh, as Alex's tattoo says, uh, TV is a character's medium. So uh, <laughs> it, it would be useful to ground ourselves in one of these natives or in the military captain or whoever we're going to be following this story through the eyes of. It's on my neck. <laughs> so it's right across his face. He can only ever get a job in a writer's room now. Uh, so what makes us want to read on from this teaser versus not? I think we both enjoy the world building aspect of it. Uh, I just wanted more hand holding. It sounds really dumb to say, but when you're writing a spec script or a spec pilot, there is some element of comprehension that you need to give to the reader. Uh, I think that was an element that was missing for me. And also uh, just on a character level, I wanted more information about the story that's going to be presented to me, uh, not just from a world perspective, but really uh, on a human level. Yeah, no, I agree on that. I think that I would definitely be turning over the next couple of pages and seeing where this leads and what the next scene is going to be just because of the strength of that, that world and playing with expectations. But again, we would have to pretty quickly be jumping into a character's point of view to want to carry us through the rest of this script. Our next paper tease entry is called AD, and it is a single cam comedy written by Rune Shami. And the teaser opens on a very pink doll store called American Doll, a clear parody of American Girl. An employee called Kenny carefully tends to a valuable doll whose head gets blown off by a BB gun. We reveal the shooter was Hank, the store manager, who is clearly a jerk. We also meet Jessica, an apathetic teenage employee who doesn't seem to like either of them. They talk briefly, then Hank storms off back to his office. What did you think of A.D.? I think it's an interesting setting for a comedy, this kind of very over-the-top American girl type store. I think that there's a lot of potential in there to be explored for, for its comedic aspect. And then, you know, you're setting up a couple of these character dynamics that could be interesting. You've got, you know, Kenny, who obviously cares a lot about these dolls in the store, and then Hank, who is kind of the opposite of that. The main thing that kind of pulled me up is that I didn't understand the point of the scene. It was more one of those scenes that felt like it was in there as almost an excuse for some dialogue back and forth and establishing the character dynamics plot-wise or just in terms of, you know, the basics of a scene. It didn't feel like anything actually happened within the story. 
Yeah, that was definitely my takeaway as well in the sense that I, felt, I mean, the scene overall is good at establishing uh, characters and the backdrop, but I was also missing that story element, right? It's, it's kind of all backdrop and world building and exposition, but uh, there was no really any story propelling script forward. And I would argue that this is kind of like almost a classic thing in comedy where having more jokes or humor doesn't necessarily uh, replicate or replace an actual narrative in a script. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of the teaser is hooking us into a situation that's going to continue to be explored or bringing some sort of problem up. Now, I think if you had perhaps set up the importance of this doll more, um, you know, it's the most valuable doll in the store and there's going to be a big crowd coming to look at this doll and then suddenly it gets broken and the characters will have to scramble to fix it in time or spending a little more time in the scene and highlighting the dynamics between those characters, trying to deepen that rather than kind of hitting a similar note with all of them. Yeah. And what you're pitching is essentially you wanted more stakes to that little teaser, even if it's only two pages, I do agree that even tying it back to Kenny, why is Kenny so tied to those dolls? Like what's happening with his manager? All those elements, I think the elements are already there in in some way, uh, shape or form, but you can definitely emphasize the stakes and the story uh, in a way that will make us want to continue. Right, exactly. That's a great point about the stakes. We want to know why this doll being broken matters, whether it's on a grander scale level for the store itself, or it is just personal stakes for Kenny. He's obviously very invested in this stuff. Maybe it's his favorite doll in the whole store. You know, little things like that, I think, will really help bring this scene to life and elevate it into, you know, a strong teaser. Just one micro note for me, the title is AD, which is kind of vague to me. I would honestly just call it American Doll, because to me, that's much clearer and more evocative as to what this story is about. AD feels like it might be some sort of historical thing, like the whole BC AD, or maybe it's a script about an assistant director. Like AD to me, especially given that you're making up the name of this store, doesn't conjure something, a story about dolls or a doll store. Mm-hmm. I, I thought of After Doll, the N. Night Shyamalan movie. Uh, with Will Smith. Um, oh boy. It's part of the Unbreakable Universe also. Yeah, I mean, I concur on the title and just my small micro note was there's a point where we have sort of a cutaway joke. I wanted it slightly uh, more delineated. Maybe that's just me coming from a one hour uh, set of things, but it kind of blended in uh, the script and the transition felt weird where the way it's set up, we flash back to uh, Hank and his sex doll. And I thought, oh, cool. So we're going to see a little scene with them. But no, it's literally one line. And then we get back to present day at the doll shop. So kind of wanted more transition there. Yeah, I think this ties back to what I was saying about trying not to hit the same note multiple times. Hank mentions the name of his sex doll, Betty Cocker. And then we cut to the scene. And again, it's just kind of like, here's my sex doll, Betty Cocker. And then we come back out of the scene. And it's like, that was my sex doll, Betty Cocker. You know, like, it's the same point that they're making comedically. Whereas if you escalate that or find a different angle into it, you know, you set it up and then you undercut it or reverse it or escalate mm-hmm. it or something like that. You're going to get a lot more mileage out of that joke. Yeah, You could also, I write cut the flash and just have him state that as a standalone joke, essentially. Right. I think if a line producer was reading this script and they're like, well, our budget's a little thin this week, they're just going to cut that flashback and right. the whole extra scene and just be like, you can do this as a dialogue joke. So what makes us want to read on? I think I am interested to explore this setting more, this American doll world and the opportunities that are available within that. You know, it's, it's such a heightened thing of these, these dolls and these people who are working there. And why are they, you know, why is Kenny so obsessed with these dolls and how are we going to really make a story around this whole thing? Um, so I think that that would be something that's leading me on. But right now I'm not feeling as strong of a hook as it could be uh, into pulling me into wanting to find out more of that. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree in the sense that I wanted more momentum. It's, it's something we both pointed out. And in a slightly different way than Alliance, uh, there's a lot of world building, but uh, more story element is a little bit missing there. So I think if both of those are solved, it could be a, a cool, unique backdrop. And again, deepening the characters a little bit more. And, you know, if we have a much stronger point of empathy with Kenny, then we're going to feel the stakes of this doll being destroyed more and, and pull us into that world. All right, let's move on to our next teaser. All right, so the next teaser is uh, from a script called Call Girl by Delphine Chance. And here's the summary. Uh, in a bathroom, we find a woman in her 30s, Lisa Farrow, immersing herself in the bath. We then flash back to a call that Lisa received from an escort agency about an appointment. Lisa goes to a hotel room in downtown San Francisco and meets Mike, a predatory businessman. Lisa tries to ask if he has any special requests when Mike grabs her without warning and starts to ha uh, forcefully have sex with her. Lisa initially seems to go along with this until Mike slaps her and chokes her. She fights back, and the situation escalates as Mike shoves her to the floor. Lisa tries to leave, but the room is locked. Panicking, Lisa pulls a gun from her bag and kills Mike as he tries to grab the gun from her. Lisa lies in shock when suddenly a man appears in the room and offers a hand to Lisa. Uh, what were your thoughts on this, Alex? Well, uh, there is a lot to unpack in this teaser. And the first thing I want to say is rape scenes or scenes of sexual assault are pretty much the hardest scenes to pull off specifically because you're risking cheapening the emotions and trauma of what is happening and at the same time being hackneyed and tropey by using something that doesn't really serve your characters outside of being a tacked on trauma element without any exploration. And doing it as an opening teaser can be especially problematic since it isn't content we haven't seen before and it doesn't really present a fresh take on a character in of itself. Showing sexual assault isn't fresh or interesting or innovative. If that is a needed part of the narrative, then what matters is how you explore ways sexual assault honestly influences people and how they react to it. And to that point, in this teaser, one of the things I found problematic, honestly, was that despite the very intense traumatic events unfolding, the description was not emotional enough and specifically not told through the POV of the protagonist. It's almost like a blasé retelling of these really effed up events without actually showing the reader something unique and compelling about this character specifically. Yeah, like Alex says, uh, sexual violence is now such a trope in screenplays, unfortunately. You know, it's going to get eye rolls from a lot of readers, especially women, because it's so overdone. I know from speaking to a number of industry friends who read a pile of scripts every day that this is one thing that they're kind of just sick of seeing. Now, usually that's because of the way it's written and handled. It's often written by men who are using it as titillation and shock factor, you know, very much written through the male gaze. Now, perhaps it's not the case here, as the writer is a woman, and of course she has every right to explore this kind of story space, especially if it's being drawn from a personal experience or stories from people she knows. I would just caution, you know, why it's being written about and what purpose it serves and recommend against just exploring it from sort of a theoretical speculative point of view, especially if it's being done to make the story interesting or give the character complexity or a wound. You know, at this point, it's almost the equivalent of making an alcoholic detective. Unless we're genuinely exploring this in an emotionally resonant and truthful way to people's experiences and exploring those consequences, it does just feel like a thin cliche. Yeah, I think there are specific prose elements we can point out to of ways of massaging this, uh, even 
from the start, when Mike thrusts himself on Lisa and starts having sex with her, I found some of the casual reactions of Lisa confusing. For example, I'll quote the script now. It says, he gets between her legs, pushes her panties on the side and enters her, breathing heavily. Dubious, Lisa still plays the game. So why wouldn't Lisa be dubious in this moment? I, I thought that was a, sort of like a jarring disconnect from the actual physical events unfolding. Yeah, it didn't feel like a, a genuine reaction to that kind of situation. You know, I was similarly tripped up on that point. Uh, it seemed unsure, even from the writer's point of view, whether this was a, a genuine serious violent situation or some kind of, like we she had introduced, you know, a special request rough service that John had ordered or whatever, you know, that she goes along with his game. It just feels strange and and not in line with what's happening. You know, maybe we need to clarify how she's feeling about this or reacting to it. It's just kind of odd and off-putting now. Yeah, I think that somewhere in that interplay, there could be this unique, interesting POV that hasn't really been explored much in TV, and that is specifically the transition from this apparent business exchange relationship, right? Right, since she's an escort girl, to essentially sexual assault, which is a horrible moment in of itself. But forcing us to live in that sort of messed up, dark area through the perspective of this protagonist would bring this piece in my mind to another level that is, as it stands, a bit too hackneyed. Right. Obviously, there's a way that you could explore this in a, a truthful and, and real and messed up kind of way that that really highlights just how intense and horrible that is. And now it's obviously not everyone's cup of tea, but there is a way to handle that in a, a respectful way that gives this kind of act the, the gravity and seriousness that it needs to be treated with to be explored in a screenplay. And from a story perspective, I think we both had a couple of uh, confusion elements. On my end, I was a little bit confused by the choice of flashbacks. And by that, I mean, is the entire sequence a flashback or just the escort call? Uh, because currently in the script, only the escort call itself is delineated as a flashback. So if the entire hotel sequence is a flashback, then I would make sure that is underlined in the slug lines. Uh, that said, if the hotel scene in of itself is really the key point of the story, I would actually consider uh, putting the reader from the get-go in her point of view starting at the hotel uh, without having that bathtub prequel, uh, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that that does is shows us that she gets out of it okay. And if you're trying to keep the reader on the edge of their seat and not knowing what's going to happen here, then knowing that everything's going to be okay is not the most effective way to create the tension. Right. It's making sort of the her more active and passive and reflective about what unfolded. And in terms of story points, again, at the end, we have this classic case of what I felt was confusion instead of mystery. This Simon who enters the room and gives her his hand. I was confused as to who is Simon. And then there was the way it was written presents his shadow hand, not shadowy hand. Like it sounded like it was like a literal hand made of shadow. I I don't know whether that was a typo or whether that was intentional, but I think that regardless, more needs to be made of what happens here in the very last kind of lines of this this script. It kind of comes out of nowhere now. I'm wondering, is there a supernatural element? Is it a shadowy cabal of assassins who recruit people who have just made their first kill? And all of these questions to me are honestly much more interesting than seeing another kind of cliche scene of sexual violence. But instead, this last bit is just skimmed over at the end of the teaser like it's unimportant. Yeah, it asks those questions that you don't want to be asking yourself necessarily uh, unless you're creating that mystery. Like, what was he doing through this entire sequence like did he just appear did he open the door was he sitting in a corner like what is happening with this simon character right why didn't he intervene or help you know things like that and one little micro element from me 
is that character descriptions were a bit lacking, specifically for the lead character, saying that she's a seductive blonde uh, in of itself, and that encompassing everything about her character is a little bit too short for what is meant to be the description of your lead character. And I felt like it also cheapened uh, her even more, uh, reducing her to her physical attribute, uh, even though she should be a complex character. All right, so what in this script made us want to read on versus not? Oh, that's a, a tricky question to ask uh, for this. I do like the idea of having a call girl as a protagonist. Uh, on paper, I think there is something to what I said earlier about this horrible transition from essentially business exchange to sexual assault. I think there's something there emotionally, something that can be leaned into. That said, as it stands, uh, I felt like this scene was uh, a little bit problematic. Yeah, I do think that there were the, the threads of something more unique going on at the very end of that with who is this Simon and what is she about to go on and do? You know, is she going to join a group of assassins or whatever it happens to be? To me, that was the the thing that made me a little bit curious. But again, in your teaser, you want to instill the confidence in the viewer that you're going to be handling these situations and the consequences of these very serious things in a way that feels unique and interesting and truthful and isn't just something that we've seen a million times before. And so in order to make it a more effective teaser, I think that you want to instill more of that confidence in the viewer, and then they're going to be willing to take that chance on the next five, 10 pages. Absolutely. Because a teaser is essentially a representation, a microcosm of that script in of itself in one, two, three, or however many pages you have. And I think that's why this paper tease competition is so interesting is because we're receiving these uh, excerpts without any context, without any explanation. And that's the sole representation of the rest of that pilot script. Yeah. And look, when it comes to these tropes and cliches, like everyone falls into them from time to time. That's why they're tropes and cliches. They're, they're common things that people do. But you can always find a way to subvert those. You know, I would have loved to see this scene where she walks in, this guy starts getting handsy with her, and she just straight up pulls out the gun and shoots him in the head. You know, and then we don't have to get into this whole voyeuristic thing of sexual assault that we've seen so many times. It's just like, well, that was refreshing. I haven't seen that before. It's like a Fargo move. Exactly, like, a, yeah. like that kind of thing. Like that, just some sort of angle on it like that that's like, I haven't seen this situation played out before in this way is going to give this script the little oomph that it needs to make it feel unique and stand out. All right, on to something uh, slightly different. Our next script is called My Parents Live With Me, uh, and it's a single cam comedy written by David Kuman. And in My Parents Live With Me, Danny Thompson, 30, is having sex with a one-night stand, Megan. His elderly mother, Deborah, bursts in the room to ask Danny to help her with the Wi-Fi, freaking out Danny and his sexual partner. Megan rushes off, saying she won't sleep with anyone who still lives with his parents. And Danny tries to explain it's different. They live with him. <laughs> what did you think of my parents live with me? I think it's a funny situation. And the, one of the things that I do like about it is that you can tell the entire premise of the show from the title. It summarizes that concept in a neat way that's like, oh, I already see the, the comedic conflict that's boiled into this show. Now, in terms of the pages that we read, I thought it was a funny situation. You know, we've seen this before in rom-coms and whatever, where a teenage kid is is having sex and the parents burst in. But this is obviously a very different situation because he's 30 and his parents are elderly and they're living with him. But it still did feel a little underutilized for me. I think you still could have made more of this scene, more of the awkwardness. You know, with comedy, you always have to ask yourself, what is the game of the scene? What's going on here? And then how does it escalate 
and escalate towards a strong button at the end of the scene. So, you know, rather than staying again on that same note and hitting those same levels, you want to find a way to just make it continually get more and more ridiculous. So the mom bursts in asking for the Wi-Fi. Right now, that's the situation, and that's how the situation ends, is the girl leaves and the mom's asking for the Wi-Fi. Whereas if the mom bursts in and then he's trying to explain and rationalize and then the dad bursts in and then this other thing happens and then the dog jumps in, you know, like things like that where you just keep adding and adding to it and leading to that kind of situation, I think uh, allows more room for, for comedy. I think that the balance is staying grounded perhaps. Uh, well, you're pitching, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a Simpsons gag right now. But uh, Right, I mean, that's uh, obviously a farcical example of that but an oversimplification. But again, like more levels need to happen to this. Of course. I, I definitely concur in the side of... I love the situation. I think it's intrinsically uh, comedic, but much like Nick, I felt like you could milk that premise even more. The emphasis with parents living with him is in the title of the show, but not in this exchange. And once again, it goes back to the whole point of a teaser. It needs to be uh, the microcosm and the explanation of what the show is. And you can definitely play that up even more and really set up the premise of the show and explaining why the parents are with him. I think there's a, a little bit of ground missing there. Yeah, I had that same thought. I think that in this teaser, we need to have that situation introduced to us in a, a more tangible way. You know, what does it mean for parents to live with him rather than the other way around? And I could see him easily just just trying to justify that to Megan to stop her from leaving. Like, no, 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 it's totally different. You know, I'm making so much money that my parents can come and stay with me. And like, th that means I'm a big man and you know, whatever. You know, I think that just really latching on to that and being like, here is the premise of the show encapsulated within this teaser would really make it a uh, strong teaser. Yeah, and you definitely have room currently because it's only, what, two pages long? So you have some space. But to conclude, what makes us want to read on? I do think the premise is fun, and I, I want to see what his parents living with him means and what that is day-to-day -day around the house, how it's going to lead to these story situations and these juxtapositions of here's a thing that would usually happen between parents and a teenager when the teenager's living with them, but then here's how it's different when he's an adult and they're all elderly people and that kind of thing. So I think that there's enough there that I would happily read another few pages and see what the, the promise of the premise is like. I definitely agree that uh, it's an interesting premise. And I think that's already better than probably half of the scripts in existence is you have like an interesting premise, you have a unique take, hopefully, on it. And so far, so good. I just wanted more of that take, more of that uh, experience. Yeah, just milking more out of the situation. You know, you've got all of the tools there and the ingredients that you need for comedy. Just add, add some more spices, mix yeah. them up together. Gotta cook it up. All right, let's move on to our next script. All right, so the next script is called Signs and Wonders by Liz Maestri. And here's the summary. We find a sweaty pastor named Jonah Fane getting his makeup fixed. He's on a theatrical altar in a megachurch. Jonah is joined by a woman named Sherry who tries to reassure him as the churchgoers are entering the sanctuary. His elderly parents, Big Jonah and Ruby, ride to the altar in a golf cart and are met by Jonah. Once on the stage, this Big Jonah introduces... Little Jonah, I guess, to the crowd. Jonah's really intensely feeling this pressure to perform and make his father slash predecessor happy. But as Jonah is about to begin his sermon, he collapses on the stage. What are your thoughts on this one, Alex? I enjoyed the world, the setup. I think mega churches are very interesting. I'm a big fan of Greenleaf on the Oprah Winfrey Network. But 
once again, I kind of wanted to live more in that stressful situation with that main character and get even deeper in his perspective. And there are actually opportunities uh, to turn things that are hard to execute as it stands and make them slightly more interesting on a character level. So for example, on page two, uh, you have a moment where you have scores of churchgoers uh, entering the premises. And from a production standpoint, I would actually be much more specific and use this as an opportunity to heighten the personal stakes for Jonah. You can, for example, have him make out the crowd or seeing people enter and stress out about that. Uh, but as it stands, hiring thousands of extra just for that one shot isn't giving enough narrative juice. So I think there's a few elements throughout that teaser where uh, you can definitely lean in even more. Yeah, totally. I kind of came up against that personal stakes thing too. I kind of wanted to know maybe why he's taking over the, the church or pastor position, why this is so important to him and his family that he does this. I wanted to engage with the emotional stakes for Jonah. You know, I was just kind of disoriented and a lot of things were happening without much explanation. We were thrown into the middle of this and I would rather have been grounded in his character and his perspective and understand the full kind of weight of this rather than being thrown in and blinded by the bright lights. I think it becomes even more relevant as the teaser progresses. Uh, even at the very end, uh, when he does collapse, it's very minimalistic in the way the prose is written, which I like the idea on principle, but in my mind, you can be even more pointed and direct about what is actually happening there. And by that, I mean less metaphors and imagery over outright stating what is happening and being in his mind. So currently it says uh, he's on the world spins as opposed to Jonah is at the podium. He's about to speak. His vision blurs. Something to put us back in his POV and emphasize what is happening to him. Right. I mean, the words on the page are poetic and they're nice, but, you know, the issue is if you're trying to paint that kind of poetic image and it leads to confusion about what's actually happening or, like Alex says, removes you from the POV of the character, then it's not as effective as you would want it to be. Yeah. I mean, just look at the classic example of the alien script. I think that's a great example of something that's very minimalistic in the prose. It's one line per one shot. And I'm not saying this is a horror movie and you need to go full genre and describe every shot in that way. I'm just saying that there's ways of emphasis emphasizing personal emotions and personal stakes through that prose. Yeah, I was a little confused about the tone of the script as well. For me, it kind of, especially at the start, straight into comedy at times with some of these jokes that Jonah was cracking on stage. And I really wasn't sure if this was meant to be a, a dramatic or comedic scene until closer to the end when he collapses on stage and we're really feeling the drama of that moment and it's not made into a, you know, a laugh or that kind of thing. One of the things that played into that for me was the old pastor and the mom driving up in a golf cart. It just felt a little odd to me, and I wasn't sure if, if they were going for this as a comedic moment or, or dramatic. And when I was thinking about it, to really heighten that pressure of you know, his father's expectations and the thing he's going to be taking on, I wondered if maybe it wouldn't be easier to just have his father have died and now he has to step in. And, you know, he has maybe that silent weight of his father's portrait looking back at him, expecting him to carry on his legacy rather than his father, like, rolling around in a golf cart and literally mouthing to him, don't screw this up, kid, you know? There's a way of handling the, the dad without it being the golf cart element. You can have him be present on stage. You can have him take the place of Sherry. You can have other ways of being this overbearing father figure that's behind him instead of just cutting the character because to be honest we don't know whether or not this big jonah character is a protagonist or just some uh, tertiary character yeah for sure i guess the note behind the note there was just that i think there was a stronger and simpler way to integrate the father in without introducing these extra elements of the golf cart and, and this and that that made it feel a little bit odd to me i also would have liked a better sense of place within this the structure like 
what does this building look like? How big is the crowd? What is the difference between the altar and the sanctuary? You know, that's not necessarily intuitive for people who aren't familiar with what those things are. Such a unique environment as a megachurch. I would love to have just read a little description about that and got a sense of being grounded in this place. Yeah, that's again the idea of immersing the reader in not just the, the character, but the location and the environment. So I definitely concur that there's ways of heightening uh, all those elements. And even from a character standpoint, I felt like description was lacking once again, just going back to Jonah simply being described as in his 40s and mouthing an unintelligible prayer. Uh, I think you could add a few words to really describe what kind of person and man he is and perhaps use this as an opportunity to contrast how Big Jonah behaves or even Sherry behaves. And to that point, I thought the relationship between the people was a bit confusing. Uh, that's a classic thing of you can outright state in the prose who these people are compared to these other people. Yeah, I wasn't sure if the person doing his makeup was Sherry or a different woman. And then Sherry walked in and then Sherry, a close friend, a relative, a lover. Like it was it was kind of unclear mm-hmm. to me. What if Sherry is a shapeshifter and she morphed uh, back into uh, her true form? <laughs> Entirely possible. So what makes us want to read on with this script versus not? I mean, like I said, I do love the environment on paper uh, or in theory, I should say. I do like characters. I do like the interplay. I wanted more emotions out of it, in essence. I wanted to be more in the mind of Jonah throughout uh, this process. And I think if you hit that, and as mentioned, if you sort of emphasize that setup in that world and that backdrop, I think there's definitely an opportunity to tell something new in the story. Yeah, I do think that there's a lot of potential in this world, in this setting, to say something and to make commentary on things and to explore certain themes about you know family and religion and all that kind of thing. So I think that it has a lot of potential to tap into in that regard. Again, like Alex said, I just wanted to feel myself more grounded in the character and his point of view to really carry us through this rather than being kind of disoriented by the world. All right, let's get on to our final teaser of the month, Transplants by Eric Nowak which is a multicam, and in Transplants, we open on archival footage of the comedian Bell Hicks doing a bit about how people who work in advertising should kill themselves. We then cut to Alex interviewing for a job at the weed store Puffin Nugs. He is being interviewed on camera by Jose. Alex explains his backstory of how he quit his job in advertising to move from Washington, D.C. to California to become a screenwriter. And he just wants this steady job for now as freelance design work is unstable. He gets the job at the weed store. What are your thoughts on transplants? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to unpack here. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is just on a conceptual level, the juxtaposition of someone who worked in advertising and now works in freelance design, getting a job at a pot store is not inherently comedic. There's nothing about those two things that kind of intersect for me. Now, if this was someone who used to run a dare campaign or was an ATF agent who busted drug growers until pot became legal and he lost his job or something, that would be different. But to me, there's no clear comedic dynamic at play within the premise itself. And then again, we're kind of adding layers onto that, where it's it's a show about someone trying to break into screenwriting. And this is, you know, I will just say, uh, usually a red flag for readers in this industry as well, because it's one of those things that is a little bit tropey and gets those eye rolls and isn't the most cinematic thing to put on screen. But, you know, what that says to me, too, is it's just bloating the concept again. It's a show about a former ad man working in a pot store trying to break into screenwriting. Again, those three things don't really have anything to do with each other. Comedic premises need to be tight and cohesive and include some kind of inherent conflict, irony, or juxtaposition. You should be able to give me one sentence, and I should be able to laugh at that sentence, because inherently it's funny to think about those things mixed together. 
Yeah, we'll also add that I was a little bit taken aback by the opening being this super long monologue of this other stand-up comedian who was barely relevant to the story happening in the teaser. First of all, half-hour comedy starting with stand-up uh, are a bit of a trope since uh, Seinfeld, so that's a, a dangerous territory to open your script on. However, if you really want to incorporate part of his uh, routine in the story, I would suggest uh, injecting it organically within the scene. The piece is already there. You could have have Alex show to Jose a clip from Bill Hicks's stand-up routine off YouTube and then cut to a piece of that relevant routine. There's just natural ways of getting both the exposition and the content without sacrificing either. Right. I think even just from a practical production level, it would be difficult to secure the rights to this Bill Hicks stand-up piece and have it as the very first thing in your show. You know, you could get away with just making that the kind of prologue quote on your script page and then have him reference it within text. He's like, you know, I was thinking about that Bill Hicks bit, you know, the one where he says that ad men should just kill themselves and then you're done. You know, like we don't need to necessarily see that. And I think that for a script on spec, it's just making it more difficult to get it made. Yeah, that's um, another element that detracts from the point of a teaser, which is exploring who your unique characters and your unique world are as opposed to this other existing real-life comedian uh, who's not directly connected to your show, unless maybe you have Bill Hicks attached. In that case, uh, kudos to you. Uh, he died in 1994, yeah. so I doubt it. I was going to say. Yeah, so the other thing that this kind of like clip of the Bill Hicks thing did for me was confuse the timeline a little. So we start off with Bill Hicks, whose comedy was in the 80s to early 90s, and then the next scene where we actually get into our world, the Chiron says, the past hyphen like three months ago. Now, is that three months ago from what, present day or from the Bill Hicks clip? And then and there's this additional joke on top of that where the camcorder has the year in the corner as 2099 as sort of just like a joke. But again, that just confuses the timeline again. I still don't know when this entire thing is set. I think it would just be much easier to tell us the date. In terms of the introduction to the characters, we aren't given any ages. I don't know how old Alex and Jose are or what they look like. You know, I think the show is very different if it's someone who quits advertising at 55 to move to California and become a screenwriter and work in a pot shop than someone who does so at 25 or 30. I think, as with a lot of comedy scripts, there's always the potential to heighten the humor that's there and get out more jokes on the page, especially in a multicam. You're looking to have two or three solid laughs per page and really get that audience laughing. You're probably going to have a laugh track going on. So that's super important. And every single line of the script, I think uh, that's an opportunity, much like in, a, in drama. I use every single line to make someone cry. It's my job. <laughs> That is a good point. You, know, you never miss an opportunity with a line or a piece of action to make something funny. Another thing that felt a little strange to me was that these opening six pages, despite being formatted like a multicam, didn't feel like a, a multicam because we started with archival footage and then we have someone shown on a camera screen with that kind of like layover on it. And these are tricky things for multicam shows to do. You know, they're meant to be set on a stage in front of an audience and we're in instead of, you know, the storefront set that the majority of this is probably going to take place in at Puff and Nugs, we're in a back room in a closet somewhere. So, you know, the teaser should usually be introducing us to the main set or location and feel like you know, a microcosm of the show. Because a uh, multicam is essentially uh, only limited amount of sets, and that is the home of the show. And to that, I will say that perhaps this is the, the first time and perhaps only time I'll say this on air, but I thought it was a little bit too formatted. Especially if you look at scene six on page five, you're wasting two thirds of a page um, just to format properly uh, the scene, which I guess maybe on a production level, if you were to produce this multicam professionally, it would probably look something like this. However, uh, as a spec sample, it feels awkward and you're just wasting space. 
Yeah, again, it's it's a strange choice, too, to do a cutaway joke in a multicam. Just because we're having an audience sit there and watch it on stage, it's very hard to just cut to another side of the stage where the same characters are already there. Just from a pure production level, I mean, yes, you can do stuff where you pre-shoot on another day and you edit it into the live thing, but the majority of your stuff wants to play to an audience in a scene. And so the scenes are going to run longer. They're not going to be doing cutaway jokes like Family Guy, that kind of thing. And that's real estate you can reuse for the comedy that is set in present time. So what makes us want to read on? I think there's the opportunity for the character of Alex to be interesting and intersect with this world of the pot store in a fun way because of his background in advertising. And obviously he has very strong opinions about comedy and things like that. So I think that once we delve into this character, there could be more uh, to the show and to this world that would, would really elevate things for me. But right now, I just feel so thrown around by starting off an archival footage and then this on-camera thing in the back. There's just so little of it felt like what a multi-cam would feel like that I would honestly just go back to formatting as a single cam. And again, just conceptually finding what is the simplest and neatest and strongest comedic premise and through line that, that has some sort of irony or juxtaposition to it to draw people in rather than putting layers on layers and hats on hats. There is the opportunity to heighten the contrast. And also, I will say that I do love Alex as a character name. I think Oscar should have characters named Alex. <laughs> this, this is bias. This is a <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. Alex is going to be fired for a conflict of interest. Uh, moving on. Let's, uh, let's talk about our winners. We're uh, August 2018 winners. We'll each get a free month of the Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network, a $69 value. Nice. This month-long program will grant the writer one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to. They'll get a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch prep webinar with a literary manager, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. So that is a lot of value for sending in your paper tease script. Who are the winners this month? So the first one is Signs and Wonders by Liz Maestri. Ooh, congrats, Liz. Congratulations. And the next one is My Parents Live With Me, Not You, Me, by David by David Cuman. My Parents Live With You? Yes, exactly. <laughs> congrats, David, and we look forward to hearing how uh, these prizes go for you. And on that note, our paper tease competition is still open for submission. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air, win prizes, and be eligible for the paper team mentorship. And on that note, thanks for tuning in and listening to us as always. You can get all those show notes and teasers for this episode at paperteam.co slash 103. And if you want to leave us a review and uh, critique our podcast <laughs> after we've critiqued your scripts, you can do them at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those will help us get new listeners and build our community. And this episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers give screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped 49 writers find representation. Visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, or questions for this podcast, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be off for Labor Day, but we will be back on Monday, September 10th. Yeah, we'll be talking to Joey Tucci, the CEO of Roadmap Writers, about ways to get noticed from outside the industry. And we'll see you in two weeks. Catch you then.